Hi, it's JV here. Due to its length, this episode of Beyond Reality with guest Tim Cohen has been divided into two podcasts and two YouTube videos, part one and part two. In part one, we discuss Tim's book, North Korea, Iran, and the Coming World War, which explores the current geopolitical climate as it relates to two of the most dangerous emerging nuclear powers in the world. In part two, we examine Tim's book, The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea, in which Tim not only claims the Antichrist is already among us, he actually identifies him. Both are fascinating discussions. Please enjoy them, and thank you for your support. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. We have a a spectacular program for you tonight. Tim Cohen will be with us. Tim is an author. He's going to be talking about the Antichrist. He says the Antichrist is here on Earth, and he knows who he is. That'll be an interesting conversation. We're also going to talk about North Korea, Iran, and the coming World War III that will involve those two nations as a flashpoint. Great conversation tonight. I'm really looking forward to it. Before we get too much further into the show, however, uh, Tennessee obviously hit with an amazing uh, natural disaster overnight. And our hearts and prayers go out to everyone who suffered loss of life or loss of property or I just can't imagine that type of ordeal. I mean, we have storms in the country a lot, but for storms to kill 25 in a period of time as short as that uh, just tells you the intensity of those storms. Mother Nature, uh, when it when she rears her head and, and tries to make a point, she certainly does it with a vengeance. So again, our hearts and prayers go out to everyone who is touched by those storms. And for those of you who was a near miss, uh, you know, we're thankful you're all safe. So, um, and I know some of you in our chat room um, live in that area. So we're, we're very, very glad you're safe. Uh, and, uh, and other news, I mean, obviously we're all paying attention to this coronavirus. It's um, up to nine deaths, I believe, in, in uh, Washington state which seems to be the epicenter right now. However, there are cases reported all over the country. Well, not all over the country, but in many spots around the country. I think New York had a couple. Uh, New York City, that is. Um, Although I had heard reports there were some in upstate New York, which gets pretty close to home for me. So again, just be smart about this. Uh, You know, we, we talked last night about it, and we talked about the fact on several of our discussions here that it seems like there's just a lot of hype. And when you start doing the comparisons with uh, deaths from influenza or other types of diseases that are uh, also communicable, you start to recognize that this might not be the catastrophe that they're making it out to be. However, I keep coming back to one point. If that is in fact the case, and this is not something to worry about, the governments around the world are either just prone to hysteria or they're reacting to public hysteria and just trying to do something to keep people happy, or they know something we don't know. It's one of those things. And we're going to continue to ask those questions of anybody we can, and we may even ask our guest tonight if he's got an opinion on it. So keep your keep yourself vigilant. Wash your hands. That's the best advice, of course. And be smart. Um the other thing, uh, I mentioned the, the chat room. Um, we do have some folks who are in the Tennessee area who uh, close call for these storms. But when I talk about the chat room, I'm, of course, talking about our YouTube chat room. 
And if you haven't found our YouTube channel yet, you need to go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson, just my name. And when you find the channel, subscribe. We also encourage you to click the notification icon. That way you get a, a notification when we go live or we upload bonus material, which we do as well. And that's a great way to join our online community. It's a place that we all gather during the live stream in the chat room, that is, and uh, talk about what we're talking about uh, during the show, plus some other things. We have a little fun in there, too. In fact, usually after we let our guest go on the program, we have uh, we play some games, do a little trivia and stuff in the chat room. It's a lot of fun. So, again, go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson. When you find the channel, please subscribe. Also, find us on Facebook. It's J.V. Johnson on Facebook and also Beyond Reality Radio. Uh, I encourage you to like both of those pages so you can follow us when we post there as well. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. We're excited to have our guest, Tim Cohen, with us. Tim is an author. He's also an internationally known teacher, speaker, researcher, analyst, and computer technologist. He's wrote four years of high school computer programming curriculum for the Denver Public Schools while in junior high. And as a high school sophomore, was a Silicon Valley research intern with Atari at 16. He also took first place in the Colorado-Wyoming Science Talent Competition at 18 and was recognized for his early computer science work by the U.S. Department of Education, the Colorado State Board of Education, the Denver Public Schools Superintendents, and Board of Education and others. Cohen attended the U.S. Air Force Academy, class of 1998, and he served in the U.S. Air Force. Tim, that's quite a resume, but I get the impression you took a shining to uh, IT and technology early in life. Uh, What drew you to that? Yeah, I did, and just... uh mention it was class of 88 rather than 98. I'm a little older than I sounded there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Yeah, actually, uh, it was a junior high school uh, math class. The teacher was friends with the fellow running the first high school computer lab in the country at George Washington High School. And uh, I asked the teacher when I had gotten to programmable calculators at the age of 12, you know, if I aced my exam with my calculator, uh, you know, would he allow me to be involved with uh, George Washington High School's computer lab? And all that worked out. That's what happened. And I was working there before and after school uh, throughout junior high from that point forward and uh, also over the summers and uh, being given computers to use, etc. So by the time I was 14, I was uh, actually quite advanced uh, in computers uh, for that time and uh, writing high school computer curricula for DPS. I, you, you mentioned a programmable calculator. I remember getting my first programmable calculator, um, and it was one of those Texas Instruments. Now it would be a paperweight, pretty much. And it had a little strip, a little magnetic strip that you would slide through it you know, to, to, to save or load software. Are we talking about that kind of programmable calculator or something a little more advanced? Uh, these were a little more advanced. The first one I had was a Casio, surprisingly, okay. which was quite fancy, and it had a port on it where you could program it to uh, play through a program, Flirtily, and uh, some other music. And so I initially was messing around with that. And then uh, the next one I had was an HP 41C, uh, which was an RPN programmable calculator, reverse Polish notation, uh, quite an advanced calculator for the time. And uh, so that's 
that's what I started with. Well, when we have these conversations, I can't help but think back. I, too, took a real interest in computers when they first started to become available. Um, you know, Radio Shack, the, the, the Tandy TRS-80 or whatever the heck it was, was the first one I got to fool around on, other than the one that was in the guidance office in my high school that had no monitor. It just used paper. Um and to think how far we've come in the fact that this smartphone I carry around in my pocket almost all of the time, uh, you know, puts those devices to shame with its computing ability. It does. Yeah, I used to have fun, actually, with the TRS-80s going into the Radio Shack stores and crashing them. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd write a little program there in front of the, the salesman and crash the machines right in front of them. I could, Not I, a very nice thing to you know, do, but you know, I so, thought it was fun. Some kids throw snowballs at cars. You went into the computer store and crashed their computers. I see how right. it goes. <laughs> um, it's just really remarkable to think how far we've come. But somewhere along the way, you started to turn your attention to some other things. We're going to be talking about some of your books tonight, including um, The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea, North Korea, Iran, and the Coming World War. At what point did, I mean, obviously you, you maintain that interest in technology and computers, but at some point you started to look at some other things, too. When, when did that uh, fork in your road come? Uh, 1986, uh, the year I became a Christian. I had no interest, actually, in a lot of the things that I've pursued since then, other than programming, of course. Uh, God just changed the course of my life and uh, made me interested in things that uh, were extremely boring, like history to me prior to that, uh, etc. And you said God changed your life. Did he speak to you? At times, yes. But did he did to that when when he when you had this epiphany? Was it God speaking to you? No, not initially. I attended uh, a home church uh, in Colorado Springs. A classmate of mine, a computer science major like myself, invited me to go. And I said, "What's it about?" And he said, "Bible prophecy." And I said, "Oh, I didn't know there was prophecy in the Bible." And of course, at that time, I was a new ager. I had gotten into the occult a bit. I was convinced that maybe. It was possible to tell something about someone's future through uh, mystic-type things, tarot cards and so forth. And so I was simply curious, and I went with him. And after a few weeks of attending and not you know, drawing any real conclusions, uh, the pastor talked about Isaiah 53 and the Messiah being a guilt offering for the world. And something snapped in me, literally. I can't describe it any other way than that uh, for no rational reason at all. Uh, I simply believed. I mean, the only thought I had was, okay, so there is justice in the end. You know, and I was looking at the world at that time and thinking, you know, mankind could be pretty evil. We're going to wipe this planet out if we're not careful, and maybe it would be better if something other than us arose in our place that might take better care of uh, the world and the life in it. And that was my thought pattern. And uh, then when I realized that there was justice in the world, it's like God just reached in and snapped something, and I believed. And I prayed that day to um, receive Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah, uh, and as my Savior, and I literally, physically, felt the Holy Spirit enter me at that moment. And I've never heard any other Christian describe that experience like that, uh, but that's what happened to me, and uh, everything changed after that for me. Yeah, I can't say I've heard that description either. That's that's quite amazing. Let's talk a little bit. I was going to actually talk about the Antichrist research you've done and information that you have that you've included in your book first, but I kind of want to reverse this a little bit because, you know, obviously we're looking at um, something that seems to be, uh, if you ask one group of people, uh, an overhyped uh, 
um, problem, and you ask another group of people, it's a very serious health threat. This coronavirus that started in China and has rapidly spread around the world. I'm not sure what you think about it, whether it's it's overhype or it's it's justifiably something we should panic about. But I want to I want to know if you've got an insight on the geopolitical um, aspects of this. Well, I'll say a couple things. We know that uh, the virus supposedly began uh, in the vicinity of two bioweapons and biological laboratories, and I'll call them bioweapons because they're in China, but two uh, highly secure biological laboratories, one within 20 miles, supposedly, of the epicenter of the beginning of this uh, virus. And secondly, it's not a particularly dangerous virus in terms of death percentage, but it is particularly, particularly dangerous in terms of how easily it spreads and the fact that it can hide for up to three weeks in somebody with no symptoms before they become ill, meaning it's almost impossible to stop it in terms of uh, borders and precautions. And when I look at something like that, uh, I have to wonder, okay, is it possible that it's a dry run, or is it possible that they want to know how quickly it spreads, how much of the population gets infected, you know, what the effectiveness is in trying to stop it before putting something worse out there that might have similar um, genes to make it easily transmit. So I'm not so sure that it isn't some sort of dry run. I certainly hope that's not the case. And, of course, when you say dry run, you're talking about some type of biological weapon. I am. Yeah. Um, You know, there are people that are talking about that. I mean, there are people in the federal government that are talking about that. And originally, the first mention of it uh, was greeted with people saying, oh, you're just a conspiracy nut. But now it seems to be discussed a little bit more seriously. So do you think, would you fall on that side that this this, uh, very easily could have been engineered in a lab? Engineered completely, no. Uh, Tweaked, very possibly. And... Certainly it would be, an, I mean, if it were intentional, you couldn't get more ideal than this scenario for a dry run. And that's why it looks so suspicious. Right. One of the countries that is most affected right now is Iran. And uh, obviously Iran is one that you've looked at pretty closely and actually t- name in the title of your book, North Korea, Iran, and the Coming World War. Tell me about Iran. What's going on there? Not, not, not as far as the coronavirus, but just politically. Well, politically, you have a large population in Iran that isn't particularly happy uh, with its leadership uh, and not necessarily moving in the same direction of the leadership, but nevertheless under a form of really totalitarian control. And uh, then you have the the pie-in-the-sky hopefuls in the West who think that maybe if there's enough support for that population that they might overthrow the government that's in place there. And something like that could happen, but really I think that uh, coronavirus, frankly, has a better chance of bringing something like that about than anything that we have done uh, to try to support any revolutionary activity over there. Uh, but Iran is a country that explicitly, in terms of its leadership, you know, in Tehran, uh, repeatedly states that it wants to uh, destroy Zionism and the Zionist government in Israel, and a lot of people take that to mean uh, something akin to a Holocaust or a genocide against Israel. I don't really believe that that's what the leaders in Tehran uh, intend or mean, but uh, when they talk about, quote-unquote, Palestinians are talking about Jew and non-Jew alike in the land, and they just think that Israel has an evil government, at the same time they're willing to perpetrate 
some degree of genocide to try to eliminate uh, Israel as a nation state and supplant it with, say, a quote-unquote Palestinian state. Uh, so they're, they're a great threat to Israel in that regard. Additionally, as I document uh, in the book, uh, North Korea, Iran, and the Coming World War, there is a strong, compelling reason to believe that Iran actually detonated its first nuclear bomb in a test as early as 2008, mm-hmm. that they've had nukes this entire time, and that they have access to uh, North Korean uh, nuclear warheads and presumably missile technology. There's been a lot of exchange in that regard, and uh, Iranian, society, Iranian scientists have uh, been present for uh, every North Korean nuclear test that has been made publicly known. So uh, Iran is a dangerous country. Uh, if the government gets overthrown, then the whole situation could change rapidly, but uh, I think we're headed for war. Now, Iran was a was an ally of the United States for a long time. Uh, that changed what, in 1979. And since then, they've proclaimed to uh, be uh, an adversary, and they've called the United States the, the uh, great Satan. If Iran does ultimately get an arsenal of nuclear weapons, will they use them, uh, A, on Israel, B, somewhere in the United States, even if they can't deliver them via missile, you know, a dirty bomb situation, or just a nuclear device in you know, downtown New York City or something like that? Do we have to fear this? Uh, we do, and uh, I, th- I think the threat is a little bit more complicated. I think that, first of all, Iran is actually a rational actor for the most part where nuclear weapons are concerned, particularly in the Middle East. I don't see Iran hitting Israel with a nuclear weapon unless uh, it is as a defensive or retaliation measure. And I could see Israel striking Iran with nuclear weapons if it was deemed necessary to prevent Iran from uh, threatening Israel with a nuke or hitting Israel with a nuke. I think that Israel's government has been dishonest uh, with the public and has played politics with the public uh, concerning the uh, real nuclear situation with Iran. Like I said, I believe Iran is already nuclear armed. Iran has boasted of the ability, they've claimed the ability to easily take out our aircraft carriers there in the Gulf. And of course, if they were able to hit and, and I'm not saying they would do this, but if they could hit an aircraft carrier with a single nuke, they could sink one uh, probably pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's that concern. And in terms of the United States, our homeland, uh, there was a lot of talk when North Korea last tested uh, an ICBM about the fact that it broke up at roughly, I think it was 70 kilometers, if I remember right, altitude, 70 miles or 70 kilometers, I forget. Uh, but in any case, the claim was, okay, they don't have the ability to get a warhead all the way through the atmosphere to actually strike a city on the ground yet, and therefore uh, they're not quite such a threat that we need to go in and militarily uh, pounce them or something like that. The reality is what North Korea was doing was an EMP dry run, an electromagnetic pulse attack dry run. And Iran has done the exact same thing uh, off their own coasts with their ballistic missiles already. And what that means is if they could detonate a nuke at that altitude, they could take out much of our electric grid. Iran has talked about, and they haven't done it yet to my knowledge, but they've talked about in the last few years, sending ships you know, across the seas, as it were, to our own coasts, just like we do to them. 
and have done to them for decades. They've talked about this. And if they or North Korea got a ship off our coast, it could even be uh, by stealth. It could be a shipping container, you know, that has a missile to launch, you know, or if they got a submarine off our coast and they launched uh, a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile and detonated it at altitude, it would only take one or two of those to potentially take out our electric grid for, you know, a year to 10 years and kill up to 90 million of our, you know, 90 90 to 100 million pretty easily over a course of uh, 10 to 12-month period by starvation and disease and so forth because literally our whole system is ground to a halt. And uh, they have practiced this scenario as a dry run in both countries. So I think the threat is far more dire than the public has been told. I believe that our defense establishment is very aware of that uh, and that this is one reason President Trump has not gone after North Korea militarily yet beyond threats. And same thing with Iran. So I think we're in a a difficult situation. Explain how uh, detonating a nuclear device in the atmosphere as an EMP uh, device knocks out the U.S. power grid for maybe, you said, up to 10 years. Yes. So we have, well, first of all, an EMP works by sending a strong electromagnetic surge through wires, you know, on the ground and beneath the ground. Right. To basically fry electronics and electrical circuits. But one side effect it has is to take out unprotected uh, generators and transmission uh, stations. So we have roughly 300 large, I think it is, but hundreds of large transformers in this country, which are mostly not built here. They're custom built, and they take a long time to build and put in place, each one of them. And they're not hardened. Uh, in our grid against EMP, you know, which means uh, a solar event, you know, like the Carrington, Carrington event of the 1800s could also do the same thing to our grid that an, inten- an intentional nuclear attack could do. So what that is saying is that there's the possibility that one or two nukes detonated at altitude over the central U.S. could fry those main transmission areas, not just the lines, but those transformers. And we wouldn't have the ability to bring the grid back online for an extended period of time if that happened. And the travesty of this whole thing, J.B., is that, you know, for billions of dollars, we're not talking about a huge amount of money uh, in terms of our annual national budget. It's actually a relatively small amount of money, maybe $20 billion. I've heard different figures. But for a few billion dollars, relatively speaking, we could harden our grid and we could do it relatively quickly to mitigate this threat. And I don't understand why it hasn't been done already. You know, our own military uh, relies upon the civilian electric grid. You know, people tend to think the military is offline, its own systems are hardened, it's got backup power uh, generation and storage for some period of time. But the reality is, once that runs out, uh, it's hooked into the civilian grid. And if the civilian grid is down, our own military ends up being paralyzed. Is there anybody in the federal government um, uh, sing, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs about this or making any noise whatsoever about this? Oh, several people have. 
Uh, and in fact, it's been a big agenda since the 1990s, at least. It just hasn't been addressed. And it makes me wonder if it isn't some sort of behind-the-scenes, you know, mutually assured destruction kind of conspiracy where people are thinking along the lines of the Cold War, okay, if Russia does this to us, we'll do it to them, or if China does this to us, we'll do it to them. That kind of thinking never really accounted for what we'll call rogue states like North Korea or right, Iran. Right. You know, where Iran says, well, okay, if you do it to us, <laughs> we're more capable of living, you know, yes. without the grid for an extended period. Plus, you know, our martyrs will just go to heaven. <laughs> right. And North Korea is a country that says, well, if you kill us, you know how it is. With the Japanese kamikazes, we'll come at you twice as hard. Mm-hmm. You know, till you're dead, even if it kills us. So these are not rational actors. They don't have the same calculus. And on top of that, North Korea has a mutual defense treaty with China. And if China were to act on that, we would, you know, for that and other reasons that I discuss uh, in North Korea, Iran, in the coming World War, we'd quickly find ourselves in World War, not just some regional war where the United States is, you know, severely threatened with an EMP attack or something like that. It can get far worse. Has the U.S. government been negligent in letting this genie out of the bottle, letting Iran get to the point where it could very well have already developed a nuclear device? Certainly North Korea has. Oh, there's no question uh, that there's been negligence. There's been dishonesty. You know, Israel found a cache of documents, a large cache of documents that it brought out uh, before my book was published, in fact, and showed the world that Iran had been lying to the public and to the international community this whole time and had, in fact, pursued the development of nuclear weapons and had, in fact, stored the technical know-how to bring that effort back online and quickly produce nuclear weapons, even though they weren't supposed to have retained any of that. And what has the world done? Well, to this point, we're only now, literally now, like today even, (laughs) seeing the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, say to Iran, explain this, you know, some of this stuff. And this is years after it was exposed by Israel, for example. And then the same thing was happening under the Obama administration, where there were all these claims about how the world would be a safer place, you know, Iran would abide by these agreements, the, the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, it's called, you know, which is an agreement between Iran and then mostly the members of the Security Council, the permanent members of the UN Security Council. But uh, in any case, it's clear that Iran hasn't abided by that. But additionally, none of these actors, including Israel, have been honest about the real state of Iran's nuclear weapons development before the JCPOA was even a glimmer in anyone's you know, mind, uh, meaning going back to the 2008 time frame where Iran tested a nuclear bomb. And so uh, there's every reason to believe that Iran could have a cache of warheads that the public doesn't know about, or if they don't, that they can get that fairly quickly and that they may have access to that uh, from North Korea. So... Lots of dishonesty. The danger is real. And I think nobody's really dealing with it uh, with integrity yet. And I think so. Well, for that reason, it's kind of a situation of too little, too late. In uh, January of 2002, George W. Bush 
uh, following the terrorist attacks, of course, of 9-11, proclaimed the axis of evil, being Syria, Iran, and North Korea. Um, I don't know, you know, if, if we know what happened in Iraq, of course, um, but I don't know if there were additional plans at that point to address the potential of a nuclear Iran and a nuclear North Korea. At that point, they may not have been there yet. And um, maybe the unpopularity of the Iraq war stopped those plans. Do you know if that was ever the case? Well, roughly the 2005 time frame is when North Korea really became publicly known for developing a nuclear weapon and had claimed to have tested one. And in our you know, major news media, that was mostly discounted. And then, of course, later we found out it was true. Now, North Korea has tunnels, you know, going across and under the border <laughs> into all sorts of places <laughs> in South Korea, meaning they've had the ability for quite some time potentially to plant bombs <laughs> just, just beneath the surface in South Korea. That's a real threat. We don't hear a lot about that in the news. And so even when we go back to the time frame uh, of what Bush Jr., I'll call him, you know, George W. Uh, George W. Bush, not Herbert Bush, but George W. Bush. Right. You know, when, when they were talking about dealing with Iran and North Korea, nobody was really taking it seriously. It's the same thing that politicians have always done, kick the can down the road to you can't yep. anymore until it turns into some terrible disaster. And in the meantime, the public is happy with you. <laughs> right. And that's what we've seen again and again and again. And I think President Trump has come in and said, wait a minute. We can't do this. We can't do business as usual. And so he's terminated the U.S. participation in the JCPOA. He's more or less towed Israel's public line in terms of the Iranian threat. Again, still no honesty, really, in terms of their their potential real nuclear weapons capabilities. But he has publicly become much more stern about it. And the same thing uh, with North Korea. You know, there, there are accounts that Obama when transitioning uh, the presidency to President-elect Trump, told him that the number one thing he was going to have to deal with, and quickly, was North Korea. So why didn't Obama deal with it? (laughs) Since he knew that. You know, and of course, we've played this game with North Korea where President Trump has tried to be lovey-dovey with Kim Jong-un. And how has that turned out? Well, North Korea has accused the United States over the last year, and even before that, of stalling for time. These are their words. They've accused the Trump administration of stalling for time with these sanctions and so forth. Uh, But the reality is the opposite. It's North Korea that's been stalling for time, and they've done it successfully. And what they've accomplished in this period of not actually testing ballistic missiles that would be... uh, intermediate or long-range, is potentially the development of a submarine capable of launching a ballistic missile, a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile. And there's concern that they may actually have that online at this point, or will very soon. And additionally, uh, in the last few months, of testing what appears to be a solid rocket fuel engine. And if they were to bring that online with their next set of ballistic missiles, it would mean that we'd have very little forewarning, potentially, if any forewarning, of a ballistic missile launch. You know, say a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile with a solid rocket 
engine could be launched in short order, and we wouldn't have much, if any, forewarning. So uh, the situation has actually become much more dangerous because of this lovey-dovey approach that President Trump has taken. And in the end, as always happens in these situations where you're dealing with mad individuals, and I will go so far as to say uh, the reality that Bible prophecy will be fulfilled, in the end it will come back and it will bite us hard. For those of you just joining us, we're talking with Tim Cohen tonight. We're talking about his book, North Korea, Iran, and the Coming World War. We are going to um, talk about the Antichrist and his book, The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea, um, as well as we continue this conversation. But, uh, Tim, you know, these ideas and these threats have existed for a while. What made you decide to write a book about this? Well, uh, I assume you're talking about the book on North Korea and Iran? Yes. So I actually began that uh, in 2008. And the thing that spurred me to do it, and of course I've been looking at Bible prophecy for a long time before that, but the thing that spurred me to write this particular book and to look at it in more detail is that I realized that the second seal of the apocalypse in Revelation was talking about North Korea and Iran. You know, I point out uh, in my book, The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea, that the imagery that Christians for so long and others, you know, let alone Christians, have believed was not literal and had to be mystical or mythical in some fashion or, you know, whatever. This bizarre imagery that you find in Revelation, the symbolism, had believed that it was not going to be literal, that in some fashion it would be metaphys- metaphysical, metaphorical, etc. But I realized with the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea, uh, while I was still at the Air Force Academy, by the way, that that imagery is in fact literal. And it turns out that the second seal of Revelation, which deals with uh, a rider who goes forth on a fiery red horse and is given a sword with which to take peace from the earth, is actually talking about North Korea and Islam, but in this case more specifically uh, Iran. And then ultimately it encompasses the United States and Saudi Arabia and other actors. So when we talk about the fiery red horse, that's actually the national symbol, JV, of North Korea. Hmm. And a statue of that horse, which is, which is supposed to be a fiery red pegasus from Asian mythology, called Kolima or Konoma, overlooks downtown Pyongyang. It's a huge statue. It's, uh, it's not red in color during the daytime, but they light it up at certain ceremonies at different times of the year with uh, fiery red torches, so it looks kind of red, but it's also depicted on their currency as a fiery red pegasus and in other symbols throughout North Korea. And they even have named a number of their military armaments, like tanks and aircraft and so forth, after this fictional fiery red horse or pegasus. And the idea is that it's a fiery red horse that can leap great distances in a single bound. And so they chose it as their national symbol. And the United States, of course, was aware of this. And so we had the Red Horse Brigades, that's an acronym, facing off against North Korea during the Korean War, because we understood that the Red Horse was their national symbol, so we you know, faced them with brigades that we decided to call Red Horse. And in terms of the alliance, and that's what it is between North Korea and Iran, you know, we look at Islam as the religion of the sword. That's what uh, Muslims say of it themselves. You know, they call it the religion of the sword. And uh, we recognize it as that in the West. And if you look at most of the uh, national flags of a lot of the Muslim countries, you'll see 
a sword associated with them or on them. That's right. In the case of Iran and Saudi Arabia, both. They have that sword on them. And speaking of the Red Pegasus, let me just mention, you know, Rex Tillerson, our former Secretary of State, the first Secretary of State under President Trump, was the former CEO of ExxonMobil Corporation, right? Yep. And ExxonMobil came out of a merger that involved mobile oil. And mobile oil had, for its original symbol, the fiery red pegasus. You know, a red That's pegasus. That's right, yeah. And you can still see that on, you know, older uh, gas station memorabilia, you know, or paraphernalia, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so we had the former CEO of a company represented by that red horse, and still is today, by the way, represented by that red pegasus. We had that CEO, you know, with the Trump administration in Saudi Arabia, you know, when things were really heating up, heating up facing off against North Korea and Iran. With the other side, if you want to say it, the other half of that coin, uh, of the same symbolism. So all that ties into the fiery red horse, which is the second seal of the apocalypse. And each of those seven seals, uh, between Revelation 6 and later, is roughly one seal per year in the final seven years preceding Jesus' return, Christ's return, and Armageddon. So in other words, I'm looking for these events to take place roughly in the second year of the final seven years preceding Armageddon. So we're not there yet, but we're, we're quickly getting there. How does China fit into all this? I mean, we've been told quite a bit recently that China is what we would consider to be our number one adversary. We've got to really pay attention to what they're doing. Their economy is poised to overtake the U.S. economy and be the world's largest. They, owe, they uh, hold a lot of our debt. Um, how do they fit into this scenario? Well, I think it's bigger than just China or North Korea or Iran or the United States. And I address this uh, in the book. So just to throw out a few plausible scenarios, uh, we have India and Pakistan, both nuclear-armed, facing off against one another. Multiple close calls for major warfare between them uh, over the decades since they've been nuclear-armed. We have China wanting to take control of Taiwan. You know, and we're supposed to be in some fashion protecting Taiwan and, of course, providing armaments to Taiwan, which uh, really upsets China to this day still. But China wants to take Taiwan. We have a mutual defense treaty between China and North Korea. And China, for a while, early in the Trump administration, when they realized how serious we were you know, about potentially attacking North Korea, and we got very close already, uh, but when they realized how serious we were, they basically said, look, if North Korea, you know, hits you guys with a nuclear missile, attacks you first, we will not step in to defend North Korea. We will set aside our mutual defense treaty that we have with them. And by the way, that treaty is still in effect. It doesn't expire yet. They renew it every so many years. It's still in effect. But on the other hand, if you attack North Korea... We will step in on behalf of North Korea as part of that defense treaty, you know, if you initiate it. And there will be war, including with China. Now, of course, you also have Russia and Ukraine, right? And the concern that uh, the European Union and NATO have 
that Russia could decide to go further than it already has with trying to take control uh, of these areas in Ukraine, uh, meaning it could potentially seek to invade Europe. You have Germany and France and even to an extent England and other members of NATO that the Trump administration has said, hey, you guys aren't pulling your weight. You're not paying your bills for NATO, for our alliance. We're not so sure that it's a good idea to maintain this alliance if you're not going to pay your bills. Why should the U.S. be doing this for you to such an extent so many decades after World War II? You know, and so there was a real risk of destabilization, and I think to some extent there still is of NATO. But in the mix with that, you've got uh, Germany very unhappy with the United States over our efforts to try to nix uh, transportation of gas and, and really trans maybe I should say nix the idea of having Russia as a major energy, energy supplier to Germany because in our minds that weakens NATO and makes NATO more vulnerable to Russian action in the event of any future major conflict that involves NATO against Russia and vice versa. But Germany is very unhappy with our interference in that arena. And then you've got Turkey. You know, Turkey, by many standards, does not belong in NATO and is drawing close to Russia, kind of like Germany sort of seems to want to do, is on the fence with, to some extent. So in other words, we have a situation, JV, where NATO is not so stable as it should be, where it is being undermined from multiple directions, where in the event of a war with North Korea, we could see Iran get involved, and so we could see major conflagration within the Middle East. We could see China get involved and go after Taiwan, at the same time thinking that the U.S. is occupied on the Korean Peninsula as well as in the Middle East. We could see Russia make a grab for some other portion of Europe, maybe wanting to reestablish some version of the, the former Soviet Union. Uh, and then we could see war at any time, really, between Iran, uh, excuse me, India and Pakistan. And those are just the major examples. There are others. But we could see some combination or all of those things realistically happen in short order simultaneously or together in the event that war occurs between the United States and Iran and or uh, North Korea. Yes. And so we're talking about a situation where we would very quickly find ourselves stretched too thin. Does that scenario uh, necessarily devolve into a nuclear war? Um, is there any chance that any conflicts that we were just talking about would remain conventional? Well, I think they could uh, for some period of time remain conventional, certainly with North Korea. I mean, even if you set aside nuclear capabilities or nuclear threats from North Korea, They've got uh, a terrible conventional threat towards South Korea. Uh, but also, uh, they've got chemical and biological uh, capabilities, particularly chemical, but we believe also biological. So they don't have to resort immediately to nuclear weapons unless they feel that that's what they need to do to take the United States off the board or to try to take us off the board. Um, you've got, and I didn't mention this, but you've got also, the Trump administration questioning, you know, the alliance with South Korea and the, the bill that we've been footing. And uh, previously, the Trump administration was demanding that South Korea pay more of that bill, just like 
it's been doing toward our NATO allies for NATO. You know, and so South Korea did up its payment. Uh, but now, uh, this year, the Trump administration is saying to South Korea, we want at least $5 billion, I think the number is, which is five times, you know, what they more recently paid. And South Koreans are getting angry over that. And frankly, it's not an unreasonable request at all on the part of the United States. But the South Koreans are saying, hey, this is kind of sudden. You know, it doesn't seem like a very nice way to treat an ally, and they're just not very happy with us. Yeah. So there's that issue. And uh, anyway, bring me back on track because I digress. <laughs> <laughs> this is all this is all fascinating. But I do have a question about the Soviet yeah. Union. How did we yeah. go from a collapse of a Cold War of our single really Cold War adversary? Loss of all their satellite states, East Germany and, and the Balkans and uh, Czechoslovakia, and uh, you know a, a, a carving up of what was a major geopolitical force into many smaller states, including Russia. But yet, Russia seems to be still a major threat, despite the fact, if I understand correctly, Russia has the economy uh, has an economy the size of Texas. Isn't that amazing? You have to wonder how these countries are able to arm themselves the way they do for such a small percentage of our own budgets, you know, militarily. So that's a whole other discussion as to where our own budgets are really going, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, militarily. Uh, it's a reasonable question and a reasonable discussion. But that being said, uh, we do face a major adversary with Russia, and I think that Part of the issue is uh, there was this attitude of peace in our time, you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall right? and the breakup of the Soviet Union and this idea that we're all going to be one big happy family now. And people tend to forget there was a, uh, excuse me, a Soviet military strategist in the past who talked about the very scenario that has played out over the last few decades occurring and that when it had played out, Russia would resurge, the Soviet Union, in his mind, in some form would resurge, and they would smash the West. Because what would we be doing? We would be lazy thinking it's peace in our time. Mm -hmm. And to a large extent, uh, that is what played out uh, up until the Trump administration, where uh, this, this current U.S. administration has been trying to deal with things that were allowed to become decrepit, publicly anyway. Uh, in our military, and uh, we still face a number of issues in that regard that are going to take years to to redress. So while we are trying to get back on track, we face adversaries with Russia and China that are vastly more dangerous than they were two decades ago. And in, in the 90s, the United States was instrumental in orchestrating funding for Russia as it emerged as a quote-unquote democracy. And uh, it seems like that money was just um, basically just fueled uh, the creation of an adversary. Well, you know, I, I talk about, and this is where it's easy to get into conspiracy theory type things. But in the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea, I talk about certain geopolitical things in relation to types of government and experiments that the so-called elite have conducted over not just decades, but centuries. And when we look at the situation after the Soviet Union, and we had a real opportunity to turn Russia into an actual ally, 
And the Russians were feeling, uh, to a large extent, optimistic toward the West and even friendly That's right. toward the West. They were becoming friendly in their attitudes. Then you get the Bush administration in there, Bush Jr., and that starts to get a little colder, you know, but we're still playing more or less nice. And then you get the Obama administration. And all of a sudden, when there's this talk of hitting the reset button and making things more friendly with Russia, the opposite is what's really occurring. And then when you see uh, Trump running for office, suddenly you've got this deep state nonsense of, oh, uh, Russia has, you know, empowered Trump to try to become president of the United States, is trying to assist that effort. There must be some collusion with Russia, this evil adversary, and turning the situation not just based on fraud, but almost intentionally, very adversarial uh, with and toward Russia. And of course, Russia's sitting back looking at this and saying, hey, <laughs> you guys are nuts. <laughs> We didn't do these things, but why are you even bothering to claim that we did? You know, for the most part, right? There is some guilt there, but yeah, some know, Facebook not the ads that was claimed. <laughs> some Facebook yeah. ads. Um, you know, I, wasn't it Mitt Romney when he was running against Obama uh, that that said, and he was ridiculed for it, said that Russia is going to be our biggest threat, and we really need to pay attention to this. I think Mitt Romney went that direction, but honestly, I didn't vote for the guy and. Didn't have much. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just remember him being ridi- him. ridiculed for that, and yeah. he's been a little bit uh, vindicated, I would say, for having that foresight. Anyway, we're talking with Tim Cohen. Um, one more question before we wrap up the discussion on this particular topic, and then we'll go to break. But if you had to look at our doomsday clock, if you will, how close to midnight are we? Well, you know, almost as a matter of course, they move it closer. It seems each year. I actually think it's moved back a little bit since we were looking at these really on-edge scenarios with North Korea about a year and a half ago. Uh, So I'd say we're probably right now about three minutes from midnight. But the thing is, I don't think it's going to move, you know, a minute at a time. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's going to move very rapidly to midnight when the time comes. Right. Be sure to join us for part two of this discussion with guest Tim Cohen on Beyond Reality. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.